listening to Heavy Board, and we're recording this on October 20th, 2023. Mary Oliver is considered one of American poetry's great contributors, and I'd never really argue that point of her legacy. I am a big fan of a lot of her writing, her essays, particularly the ones on the craft of writing. Her book on poetry, listeners, is one of the best no-nonsense books on the craft I have ever read. Mary Oliver is clearly, without question, one of the best and clearest minds American literature has ever been graced with. Her simplicity and down-to-the-point prose style makes most of her work a delight to read. But I must be honest, listeners, I've never been a real fan of her poetry. Not because it's bad or technically poor, but for the same reasons I so often find myself wishy-washy on the high romantics. I find it boring. Nature bores me. Perhaps it's my 21st century upbringing that makes me tire of nature poems. Or perhaps I've just read too many on the same subjects over and over again. I can't really say for sure. Perhaps it's because so much has been said about nature and the earth and the plants and animals that inhabit it that I am looking for something more than just observations. And sure, I'm looking at a book that's over 30 years old, but I am looking for the next step to be drawn. To use that great tradition of the Romantics and propel it forward with new insights, new ideas of beauty as we grow as a culture, a society, as people. And this is my main distaste for most of Oliver's poetry. Notice I say I don't have a taste for it, rather than the poetry is bad. While I will go into some reasons why I couldn't help but find myself a little put off by this collection, Later on in the episode, listeners, I did have thoughts. Thoughts rummaging around in my head, asking myself why I was so repulsed by this collection of poems. One of the few reasons I could come up with being, I disliked the monotony of this particular collection. House of Light by Mary Oliver was first published in 1990, and was heavily awarded when it came out. This is almost a decade after Oliver won the Pulitzer Prize for her most famous collection, American Primitive, in 1984. And while Oliver's style has always been deeply rooted in the tradition of the Romantics, I'm sorry to say, listeners, this type of romancing nature into oblivion doesn't do it for me. I find it tedious, boring. In fact, When I was about halfway through this collection, I was longing for it to end. I can only read about herons and their biological behavior and how beautiful it is so long before I start to roll my eyes. And yes, listeners, this was published when I was no more than one year old. So I am coming to this with hindsight. That may be fair or unfair, but isn't that always how it goes? I can only give you my reading of it what I saw on the page, 
what I felt, and yes, what I found extremely boring and tedious. The poems in this collection are nothing special from what I can see, merely an extension of Oliver's already well-known and well-praised style. And while there are some standouts that we will get into later on in the episode, listeners, most of the work in this collection strikes me as half-cocked. The images of nature doing the most work, and that work being an almost laughable over-romanticizing of nature itself. I've railed against this before in other episodes of this podcast, but what I want to stress here is that the technical aspect of these poems is not the main problem I have with a collection like this. What I find to be the weakest points of this collection of poems is often the use of rhetorical questions and the pulling in of famous artists like Van Gogh, Da Vinci, etc., and how those artists are often doing a lot of work for the poems whenever these famous great artists grace the pages. Poems like Fishbones may serve as the best example of what I'm talking about, the artistic heavyweights really doing most of the work in the poem. Admittedly, I was wary from the very first page, with a poem called Some Questions You Might Ask, a poem made up entirely of loosely related rhetorical questions to the reader. And I don't mind the poem so much for any technical aspect apart from that. My biggest problem is that this technique, using this collage of rhetorical questions, leaves the reader empty when they get to the end of it. Many questions raised one after the other, but leaving the reader with no answer. And I can easily forgive a collection of poems for trying to orient the reader to the main themes and even abstractness of this particular book. But I really did struggle. The topic of souls being so broad that I found it a little too tender for things like blades of grass and other organisms that have little regard of anything else around them. I do like the idea of flowers and blades of grass having a soul, like that of which we call the human soul. I think that's a rich topic for writing and creating, a great idea to theme a book around. But I do have a problem with that very same tendency, as it is prone to over-romanticizing, that when it goes too far, it becomes sentimental, overly tender. And it is this tenderness that Oliver uses to evoke a response from a reader. And my problem is that I feel the tenderness is unearned. It is heavily relying on, like Snyder's Turtle Island, a motivation for this yearning to over-romanticizing nature itself as a given, as if it's the default, something that is to be expected. In fact, I would go as far as to wager many hearing me make this critique would find what I'm saying a little baffling. But let me explain. This tenderness toward the natural world is doing most of the work in this collection of poems. And it isn't so much evoked out of the way Oliver puts it on the page, but instead starts from a position of total acceptance of this idea, this over-romanticizing, which is why I call it unearned. And to be fair, I believe that's what the first poem of rhetorical questions was attempting to do in this collection. Earn that tenderness. It just didn't for me, listeners. The poem definitely reaching for it, but I just think that it falls short of achieving. Though the attempt is to be admired, as always. And I admit that this is most likely 
a stylistic or personal taste issue on my part, more than anything against Oliver's work. As I said, I'm a fan of much of her prose writing, but as I read through the collection, my mind wasn't changed much from my initial take on that first poem. In fact, I'd go as far as to say it only solidified my early response as I got further into the 70-odd pages of poetry. It only got worse for me as I turned to poems with this sort of playful arts and crafts design where the lines are floating all over the page for aesthetic reasons and little else, from what I can tell. Though, to be fair, there are places where it does work to the poem's advantage. But I'm speaking about poems like Wings, The Swan, and The Hermit Crab, as the stanzas weave around the page to stifle and choke any fun or playful rhythm out of this book. It almost strikes me as careless at worst, experimental at best. In fact, I'd go as far as to say the book clearly wants to strangle the reader into this over-romanticized way of viewing simple things along the shore of a lake or a pond or some body of water. As I said, I can't help but be bored by these references to hiking, this overly tender view of the world around us, of nature itself, of sitting in a field and observing the way ants crawl along the dirt. I just find it laughable at this point in poetry's history. Of course, that isn't to say that this can never be done well. It certainly can. It just doesn't work for me in this collection of poems. These arts and crafts fake line breaks and these floating stanzas really started to get on my nerves after a while. These poems that seem to zigzag all over the page in a repeating pattern serves to remind the reader that this little playful way of positioning the sentences on the page obviously came before any consideration of the poems themselves. As I've mentioned on past episodes, listeners, this seems to be a trend in the 80s and 90s. Seemingly random aesthetic choices that are prominent before one even begins to read the words on the page. The dancing verses given priority over meaning making. A good example of what frustrates me when reading Oliver's work is a poem like What Is It? A poem that starts off very strong, very concrete, then slowly gets vaguer and vaguer as the poem goes on, ending in a sort of confusion in the reader when the last few lines get so broad as to mention anything over and over again, moving from a simple, concrete idea to an overly broad, all-encompassing phrase of, quote, anything. The titles in this collection left me wanting more. I found them to be surprisingly neglected as I read through. I didn't want to say lazy, but poems with titles like Some Herons really seem like missed opportunities, especially given the importance Oliver clearly wants to show in these mild observations about birds standing in water. Sure, there is some good metaphor and images in the poem, we are talking about Mary Oliver here, listeners, but I found most of it lacking. And what I feel I should say here is that the poem itself is not bad. It is a fine poem on its own merits, but it was here, only about 30 pages into the collection, that I found myself thinking that this entire book was going for something greater than it actually achieves. It seems this collection was trying to bring these natural landscapes and animals into the human realm of consciousness and even soul-searching. 
but it fails because it doesn't go far enough to link the two. Such as Luis Glick's The Wild Iris does. Or perhaps it's because I just read that collection so recently. Or maybe even perhaps because The Wild Iris really is that good. But because of these missing connections, the poems began to hit me as a tiny diary of observations in the woods while on a hike, more than anything else. The problem with these types of poems being nothing more than that they are boring. Simply observations and nothing more. The attempts to make them into something more are often too subtle, not made whole as I move through the collection. Compare a poem like Some Herons to something like Elizabeth Bishop's The Fish, and it's not even close, listeners. I go back and forth on whether I find rhetorical questions in poetry to be useful or not, but this collection showed many examples of it not working and overcrowding the poems. Overusing rhetoricals to move from image to image, or in Oliver's case, start the poems before they disappear entirely, can be a great technique. As always, I will remind you that just because something doesn't work in one poem or collection doesn't mean it can never work. But I must clarify that if overused or not used sparingly, these types of techniques can seem amateurish. Do you, as a poet, want to ask the reader questions that have no answer or to tell them something definite and beautiful? I'll let you decide, listeners out there. And that is when the rhetoricals can cloud out a larger vision of connection between images in a poem. Misusing them seems almost always amateurish. And no, I'm not calling Oliver an amateur, but I am pointing out what I feel to be a glaring flaw in a lot of her poetry. Of course, Oliver's career has been defined by her love of nature and the writing of poems that repeat over and over again, how much we should care about nature, if not only because, well, we just should. But my bigger critique of this collection is that it does not bridge the gap to make a reader care about these beautiful landscapes or random herons and hermit crabs. It strikes me as so small and feeble that I really struggled to find what this book was so awarded for. It's not so much that I found the collections too heavily reliant on this over-romanticized vision of nature. It's more that I was disappointed and expected more. Heavy Board. Okay, this is another episode of Heavy Board. I'm Andrew Wittstadt. Uh, and today we are going over Mary Oliver's House of Light. Not one of her most famous collections of poems, but there's some good ones in here, some famous poems in here, and we're going to get into it today, listeners. Real quick here, this was originally published in 1990 by Beacon Press Books, and I believe that's the only version. You could probably get some paperback or hardcover. I have the paperback version from Beacon Press in Boston there. Uh buy it, add it to your collection. Of course, it'll be linked in the description down below. Uh, and we're going to get into a few poems here and everything else that we have to go into today. Uh, but first, let's do some housekeeping. This is a podcast, patreon.com slash heavy board, where you can get full uncensored episodes, full private access to this podcast, patreon.com slash heavy board for just $5 a month. If you don't want to do that, 
can't afford it. There are other ways to support us. You can check out, subscribe, like, share YouTube videos on our YouTube channels at Heavy Board, at Heavy Board Clips. For clips, give those a like, a share, a subscribe. That helps us out. It's a free way to support us. You could also leave us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us out, helps us grow. Another free way to support the podcast. We appreciate it. Uh, and we are grateful. <clears throat> Uh, also, we're still looking for workshop horror stories. If you or someone you know has a workshop horror story, something that happened to you in a workshop, something that you witnessed, something that happened to a friend, or just your general thoughts on the matter, send that in, heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com, and we will read that on the air, have a little bit of, uh, have a little bit of a cathartic time, uh, <clears throat> In the last couple episodes we've done of this, especially emails, if you don't even have a workshop story, you just want to contact me or something, please reach out. I usually get them at the email. We send it in heavyboardpodcast.gmail.com. I will usually get it there. And I've been doing this kind of bonus segment for subscribers where I am reading them and responding sometimes if it requires a response, going a little further, just giving people a little bit of an outlet for what they're thinking, especially if it's not what um, so much the mainstream is thinking here. So yeah, give that, send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. Heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. I think that's it. That's everything. So check us out. Give us a like, share, follow us online. We're usually at Heavy Board or at Heavy Board Pod on most social media. Uh, and that's it. That's housekeeping. Make it a little coffee before we go. So, my initial thoughts on Mary Oliver's House of Light. Uh, I'm not a huge Mary Oliver guy. As I said in the monologue, listeners, I really enjoy some of her prose writing. Some of her essays, I think, are brilliant. Uh, not as much her poetry, though. I'm not a big fan of her poetry. Um, I have never read American Primitive... Um, but it is on my list. I uh, I like checking out all that, and I think Mary Oliver's earned her reputation. I'm not saying she hasn't, but I'm just going to give you my take and my taste on it here. <clears throat> a lot of it you could pick up from the monologue, but, you know, we like to go into details on this podcast, and we're doing it here. So we're going to get into it here. All right, there's about, you know, 79 pages of poetry here. So this is about average for a poetry collection, and I'll go into this here. So as I said in that monologue, the very first poem, um, like I didn't mind it. I didn't mind it so much. And I think the technique she's going for could work. It just doesn't hear from me. It just left me a little empty as to what was being said. Uh, so let me read it to you and you guys can make up your own minds. Some questions you might ask. Is the soul solid like iron? Or is it tender and breakable like the wings of a moth in the beak of the owl? Who has it and who doesn't? I keep looking around me. The face of the moose is as sad as the face of Jesus. The swan opens her white wings slowly. In the fall, the black bear carries leaves into the darkness. One question leads to another. Does it have a shape, like an iceberg, like the eye of a hummingbird? Does it have one lung, like the snake and the scallop? Why should I have it and not the anteater who loves her children? Why should I have it and not the camel? Come to think of it, what about the maple trees? What about the blue iris? What about all the little stones sitting alone in the moonlight? What about roses and lemons and their shining leaves? What about the grass? If you're hearing this, it's because you are listening to the free public feed of Heavy Board. To get complete, uncensored, uninterrupted, full access to this podcast, 
become a subscriber at patreon.com slash heavyboard. That's right, heavyboard is made possible by subscribers like you. For less than one cup of coffee per month, you will receive private access to uncensored, full-length episodes, jerk shop, heavy bonus content, subscribers-only AMA episodes, bonus extended interviews, and more. Come join the conversation today at patreon.com slash heavyboard. And that's it, right? That's the whole poem. And as I said in the in the in the monologue, this <clears throat> you know, it's not bad. I wouldn't call it bad. I just think it doesn't quite achieve. So she's talking about is the soul solid like iron, right? And finding the soul and then all these different questions about having a soul, right? What does it mean? Do animals have it? Do plants have it, right? Lemons, they're shining leaves. What about the grass, right? And this is, I think, an attempt to orient the reader into <clears throat> you know the world of the book of poetry and and this is what it is so you know we've talked about this on this podcast before and it's important i think bridget uh, bridget pegan kelly's book the orchard that we did very early on in this podcast uh, had a similar thing where you have that first poem kind of trying to orient you i've tried to do this in my collections you know maybe it works maybe it doesn't um <clears throat> i think this one just goes a little too really you know like there's a few lines that I would be like, eh, you know, do we need this? It kind of confuses, but yeah, the it in this poem is doing a lot of work. And of course the it in this poem is supposed to be the soul. And for me, it just doesn't do it. It leaves me a little bit empty here. So some questions you might ask, you know, I think that's another example of a title that is missing an opportunity. Uh, it's just, it's just, you know, titles are a technique. They're a tool to orient what's about to come after. They're supposed to, you know, group it up, uh, uh, coherently make it um, beautiful or at least just orient you to what you're about to do. And I think a lot of writers leave this out. And, you know, I do plan to go into Sharon Olds eventually on this uh, podcast. It's on the list. I want to get a guest for it, but maybe not. We'll see. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Sharon Olds. I think she suffers from her line breaks are atrocious. She doesn't know what she's doing with those, but I think she still writes some decent poetry in places. Although she's clearly been corrupted by the kind of political ideology that's going everywhere, and she's writing essays on her whiteness and all that. But I would like to uh, uh, talk about some of her her poems because she's uh, just such a big name in the in the industry. <clears throat> but as I said on previous episodes, poetry uh, I'm having a hard time with it my attitude has not been the best um about poetry but you know i say this all the time and i think you guys know this out there listening uh you know it's this is normal it's normal to do go through phases moods tastes all that changes all the time i could say oh i hate poetry today or i could say oh i love poetry you know like just depending on how you feel when you wake up that day like i'm not <clears throat> making big sweeping claims um but you know whatever that's not important so again i didn't have a whole lot of poems marked in this one because i it wasn't particularly speaking to me but i do have some some moments that i want to talk about um basically the first 20 pages or so i was incredibly bored with how tender this collection attempts to be um the tenderness is the thing that they want that i think oliver wants you to uh, recognize in the work but it's not doing the work to make the reader actually grow get to that tender uh, over romanticizing place and hopefully that makes sense to you out there especially in the kind of arts and crafts fake lineation in poems like wings on page 14 the swan page 16 and hermit crab on page 10 so let's read a few of those here 
Uh, Hermit Crab <clears throat> is actually one of her more famous poems, but uh, those of you that are reading along, you can see the way that these kind of, the, the poems in this collection are centered. They're not left adjacent, although some of them are left adjacent on the margin there. And this one has these kind of floating lines that do, um, it's, it, whenever I see these types of floating lines kind of dancing all over the page like this, and there is a pattern to it somewhat, but I, I just don't like it. I think it's more aesthetic than, than utilitarian, you know, not that that matters, but for me and my personal taste, it does. But let's read a few of these. Uh, the Hermit Crab. Once I looked inside the darkness of a shell folded like a pastry, and there was a fancy face, or almost a face. It turned away and frisked up its brawny forearms so quickly against the light, and my looking in, I scarcely had time to see it, gleaming under the pure white roof of old calcium. When I set it down, it hurried along the tide line of the sea, which was slashing along as usual, shouting and hissing toward the future turning its back with every, tide of the, with every tide on the past, leaving the shore littered every morning with more ornaments of death. What a pearly rubble from which to choose a house like a white flower. And what a rebellion to leap into it and hold on, connecting everything, the past to the future, which is, of course, the miracle, which is the only argument there is against the sea. Um, and I think this is a good example of how it kind of leaps from idea to idea, um, how we get to the sea, the darkness, and you saw some of these line breaks here, um, where's, I'll give you an example of one that I think works well, and then one I think that works bad. So, right, one, two, three, four, five, fifth stanza, so let's do this, um, under the pure right and under the pure white roof of old calcium break the under the pure white roof break of old calcium period break when i set it down comma it hurried break along the tide line break of the sea comma and of the seas of the shortest first line of any of these little stanzas here and it just that's an example of i think where this it looks like this sentence was being forced in to these floating lines instead of paying attention to what the poem calls for. And that same stanza in five, stanza five, of the sea, comma, break, which was slashing along as usual, shouting and hissing toward the future. And then that's fine. Like I think the rest of the stanza works out fine. But that first line there, I think, is very clearly a, a forcing of the line into this kind of, I call it, that's why I call it haphazard. That's why I call it a little lazy or careless um, because it seems that the form, the way these are floating over the page, is more important to Oliver in this case than the actual structure of the poem. But again, it, there are places where it works, especially that last stanza. I think it does work in this form. But I just, you know, it's it's things like that that really nitpick at me, that really get on my nerves. So I always pull them out. Uh, and let's do another one. Let's do um, wings or the swan we can do them both but let's do wings first because these are the three that i mentioned in the monologue and these are the three that i think really stood out to me i saw the heron poise like a branch of white petals in the swamp in the mud that lies like a glaze in the water that swirls its pale panels of reflected clouds i saw the heron shaking its damp wings and then i felt an explosion 
a pain, also a happiness. I can hardly mention as I slide free, as I saw the world through those yellow eyes, as I stood like that, rippling, under the malted sky of the evening that was beginning to throw its dense shadows. No, said my heart, and drew back. But my bones knew something wonderful about the darkness, and they thrashed in their cords. They fought, they wanted, to lie down in that silky mash of the swamp, the sooner to fly. If you could hear me reading that, if you could hear my pauses at the end of the line, and I'm not exaggerating the pauses. If people want to accuse me of that, I'm not. Read these poems and have me read along with them, and I'm trying to point out where these breaks happen and why they're an issue in terms of the reading through of the poem. And there's a lot of different elements that work here. And, you know, we like movies on this podcast. We like fiction on this podcast. And I think it, the rules change according to what art form you're participating in, of course. Um, you know, the line breaks are not as important in a, in a work of fiction or prose, where the line breaks are literally just, you know, the limitations of the page. Poetry, it's a little different. <clears throat> the line breaks are, are intertwined with everything else. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of pseudo-intellectuals out there. There's a lot of pseudo-critics out there that want to talk about these things and tell me that only one of them matters. So, you know, they did this one thing so well that it doesn't matter that they didn't do these other things to make a bet, the poem as good as it could be. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, that's just where I disagree with a lot of people. I think all of these things matter. I hear a lot, you know, I listen to Brett Easton Ellis's podcast, and I like that. I think he's got a lot of ideas, and I like his work. I like his, honestly, I like his reviews more than I like his fiction most of the time. Uh, I think his nonfiction is actually much better than his fiction, uh, apart from American Psycho being the exception, in my opinion. Um, but he always says this all the time about how novels and all that matters is style. I don't agree with that at all. I think style is important but like you have to have all the other components too and you notice this in the in a lot of his, especially his earlier books um Brady Stanellis I'm talking about where he just uses the style and the substance is so not there um the plot is not there and you don't have to have a plot but you have to have something interesting that carries the reader through um you know, I really don't understand why Less Than Zero is so praised and things like that. Uh, I know I'm not talking poetry now, but still, you know, reading that, and I didn't read that as a teen. Maybe as a teen, I would have thought it was cooler, but reading it in my 30s for the first time, I just was like, yeah, this is a 19-year-old's novel. This is a 19-year-old's novel that's obsessed with being cool. And there's an episode I have coming up here. I'm going to get into uh, Tessa Mosfig's, um one of her famous books and I kind of felt the same way about that that I like the style uh but it's missing that other part it's missing like to make a great novel you have to have all of these things like the best novels have both <clears throat> very you know interesting and unique styling and then just a little bit of plot even if it's not a lot of plot you don't have to have a full plot I'm not saying you have to have plot every time you don't but just a little bit. You have to have all of these things working in unison to be able to create a really good masterpiece. And people get upset. They talk about formulas. Yeah, sure, formulas matter. But yeah, you know, it doesn't matter. It just, yeah, well, that's coming up, listeners. I'll get into it. With, I have a guest scheduled for that, so we'll get into Atessa. And I've been meaning to get into Atessa for a while on this podcast because, um, you know, she's very, very highly praised. And I think one of the few uh, working right now who's not afraid to stand up to some stuff that's bullshit all right let's skip the squan so we can keep just move on uh okay first one that i actually like liked uh the kingfisher 
uh, page 18 in this. And uh, I didn't mind this poem. I liked it. And as I said, I'm not talking about this this whole critique of this book. I, I don't have anything to say technically, apart from some of the line break stuff that I already mentioned, the kind of floating stanzas. But most part, Oliver's, you know, she knows what she's doing here. I'm not calling her an amateur. I'm not calling her... Um, you know, bad. Clearly there's plenty of people that like this. It just isn't for me. But I like the Kingfisher here on page 18. Let's read it. The Kingfisher rises out of the black wave like a blue flower in his beak. He carries a silver leaf. I think this is the prettiest world, so long as you don't mind. A little dying. How could there be a day in your whole life that doesn't have its splash of happiness? There are more fish than there are leaves on a thousand trees. In any way, the kingfisher wasn't born to think about it or anything else. When the wave snaps shut over his blue head, the water remains water. Hunger is the only story he has ever heard in his life that he could believe. I don't say he's right. Neither do I say he's wrong. Religiously, he swallows the silver leaf with its broken red river and with a rough and easy cry. I couldn't, rouse, I couldn't rouse out my thoughtful body if my life depended on it. He swings back over the bright sea to do the same thing, to do it as long as, as I long to do something, anything, perfectly. And I think that's a pretty good one. That's a pretty good poem. My only like kind of minor critiques to this one are uh, some of the leaps, some of the leaps from image to image. And I see this as, you know, this is the precursor to what we're dealing with now in terms of the spoken word genre where there's just just loosely associated images listed almost. And I think Oliver comes a little bit close to <clears throat> giving like jumping from image to image. Now she's the Kingfisher helps to ground this and keep us from not jumping from image to image. So when you have something like this, like a specific fish series, I mean, a specific fish species, um, you know, it helps to ground the poem a lot more. Like something like in the middle of this, there's just this big chunk. There are more fish than there are leaves on a thousand trees. And anyway, the kingfisher wasn't born to think about it or anything else. So you could take out all three of those lines and we could go just, that doesn't have its splash of happiness. When the wave snaps shut over his head, over his blue head, you know, we could just cut those out and it doesn't matter. So I think that was like kind of a crutch or, you know, whatever people can say things about it. A few moments where you notice I, I tripped up on how this is lineated here. Because again, of that 80s and 90s trends where they have these little hangers, these little hanging on words or phrases. <clears throat> and, you know, again, I'm not saying you can't do that and that it can't work. I'm just saying it doesn't work in this collection or this poem. Like there are some hiccups here. So there are techniques to make a little hang up or a little hesitation on the end of a line where you have the first couple words or the first word of a sentence that comes again at the end that can be used to the poem's advantage more more likely than not if you don't do it right or you overdo it it use you know hurts the poem in my opinion all right i already talked about the form coming before oh we have the german title which i didn't mind i've been working on my german listeners i'm still you know i don't know what the fuck i'm doing it's not good but yeah you know all right Let's talk about a longer poem here called What Is It? And I mentioned this in the monologue. Hold on, let me get a little toot on the vape here. So let's read What Is It on page 26. Who can say? Is it a snowy egret or a white flower standing at the glossy edge of the lily and frog-filled pond? Hours ago, the orange sun opened the cups of the lilies and the leopard frogs began kicking their long muscles breaststroking like little green dwarves under the roof of the rich iron-colored water now the soft eggs of the salamander 
in their wrappings of jelly, begin to shiver. They're tired of sleep. They have a new idea. They want to swim away into the world. Who could stop them? Who could tell them to go cautiously, to flow slowly under the lily pads? Off they go, hundreds of them, like the black fingerprints of the rain. The frogs freeze into perfect five-fingered shadows, but suddenly the flower has fire-colored eyes, and one of the shadows vanishes. Clearly, now, the flower is a bird. It lifts its head. It lifts the hinges of its snowy wings, tossing a moment of light in every direction, like a chandelier. And then once more is still. The salamanders, like tiny birds, locked into formation, fly down into the endless mysteries of the transforming water. And how could anyone believe that anything in this world is only what it appears to be? That anything is ever final, that anything, in spite of its absence, ever dies a perfect death. And this is the one I used in the um, monologue to talk about how it starts off very concrete with this kind of, you know, the, the, the images of the bird, the frogs, the salamanders, and then it goes very much into more abstractness. And I guess you could say it's earned. Some people would say that as it, you know, but this is where I say it's kind of unearned in terms of the anything. So anything is mentioned like three times in the last two stanzas that anything in this world is only what it appears to be, that anything is ever final, that anything in spite of its absence ever dies a perfect death. And the lineation is good for the most part, as you could hear me read, but the poem itself ends confused, if you ask me, in terms of this kind of, it goes too broad. And I get, it's hinting at that soul searching. It's hinting at, you know, kind of giving these kind of things a soul, like a human soul, like we would consider our own kind of consciousness. Um, you know, there's some interesting arguments in the scientific community about panpsychism in terms of like, so, you know, consciousness and what has it, what hasn't, you know, to atoms, are atoms conscious, are blades of grass conscious? Um, and then I guess it depends what you mean by consciousness. But yeah, like, I, I think that this is just, you know, doesn't do it for me, loses it halfway. But you know, let me know what you think. Heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and again, some the titles are really neglected in this one, as I said, it, it, and it, it strikes me as lazy. Um, yeah in kind of a diary and this is also around page 30 here with some herons like i mentioned in the monologue this is where the book started to strike me as kind of a diary of observations in the woods more than anything else and it's not bad right like this poem isn't still i can't call this a bad poem it's just i i don't think it's saying much like like again compare something like this to elizabeth bishop's the fish where you say oh elizabeth bishop's the fish is about finding you know uh, pulling up this fish and, and whatever, but it's not, it's about more than that. Right. And everything was rainbow, 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 like just that there's, it's not in this, it's not on even on the same level. And that's why I use, of course, Bishop, one of the greatest poets to ever live. I mean, it's, you know, who can compare with her? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, you know, that's a good example of what I, I say is that's perfect. The best use of animals and, and bringing them in and giving them a soul and letting the, the reader achieve some type of, what Bloom would call a felt change or connection between this kind of fish that you wouldn't normally think about comparing yourself to, etc., or a heron in this case. Let's read it and we'll talk about it. <clears throat> Some herons. A blue preacher flew toward the swamp in slow motion on the leafy banks of an old Chinese poet, hunched in the white gown of his wings, 
was waiting. The water was the kind of dark silk that has silver lines shot through it when it is touched by the wind, or is splashed upward in a small, quick flower by the life beneath it. The preacher made his difficult landing, his skirts up around his knees. The poet's eyes flared, just as a poet's eyes are said to do. When the poet is awakened from the forest of meditation, it was summer. It was only a few moments past the sun's rising, which meant that the whole long, sweet day lay before them. They greeted each other, rumpling their gowns for an instant, and then smoothing them. They entered the water, and instantly two more herons, equally as beautiful, joined them and stood just beneath them, in the black, polished water, where they fished all day. Now you can tell me, what do you get out of that? What do you think that poem is about? And I get there's there's some there's some metaphor in there with the Chinese um, poet, the eyes of the poet, the monk, right? That um, if you're hearing this, it's because you are listening to the free public feed of Heavy Board to get complete, uncensored, uninterrupted, full access to this podcast. Become a subscriber at patreon.com slash heavy board. That's right. Heavy board is made possible by subscribers like you. For less than one cup of coffee per month, you will receive private access to uncensored full length episodes, jerk shop, heavy bonus content, subscribers only AMA episodes, bonus extended interviews, and more. Come join the conversation today at patreon.com slash heavy board. The white gowns, the preacher, there's some characters in here, but they aren't connected. And I just felt like where they fished all day is what Oliver wanted to leave us with. And I just am like, come on, is anyone going to make an argument that this is doing anything other than like something she saw while she was sitting outside by like a pond or like a fucking reservoir or something? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, let me know what you think. But yeah, I don't like it. And I think this is another one where the title could have done some work. So instead of calling this some herons, a title could have really done a lot more work in this kind of poem, you know, and even some of these, the line breaks are a little, I think, shaky. They're too short. Let me get to my favorite poem in this collection. This one is my favorite. Um, I, I like this, The Gift, it's called, on page 36, and I like summer, The Summer Day on page 60. But yes, let's read The Gift. I wanted to thank the Mockingbird for the vigor of his song. Every day he sang from the rim of the field while I picked blueberries or just idled in the sun. Every day he came fluttering by to show me, and why not, the white blossoms in his wings. So one day I went there with a machine and played some songs of Mahler. The mockingbird stopped singing. He came close and seemed to listen. Now when I, now when I go down to the field, a little Mahler spills through the sputters of his song. How happy I am, longing in the light, listening as the music floats by. And I give thanks also for my mind, that thought of giving a gift. And mostly, I'm grateful that I take this world so seriously. And obviously that last line is my favorite there. And mostly I'm grateful that I take this world so seriously. And even this one, is it's just, you know, I don't know. I guess this is talking about the speaker's, you know, gift to nature where they gave this, again, bringing on a famous artist's names here, the symphony composer. 
Mahler, um, just, you know, I, I mean, this is doing a lot of the work, right? So, so what brings her joy is this other artist's work that the bird is repeating and then we're supposed to pretend that this is some big, you know, thing. I don't know. I, I, I just don't buy it, but I do like that last line a lot. Like there's some good lines and images in this book. I don't want to say there aren't cause there are. <clears throat> All right, let's go to page 50 where I'll read you fish bones. Cause I mentioned it in the monologue and I want you guys to know what I'm talking about here. Fish bones, maybe Michelangelo or Picasso could have imagined these dream shapes, these curves and thongs, snow needles, jaws, brain cases, eye sockets, somebody, anyway, whose mind was in some clear kind of rapture, and probably in the early sun, when the sun on its invisible muscle was rising over the water. I don't think it was just a floundering in the darkness, no matter how much time there was. This morning, I picked up something like a honeycombed heart, and something else, like a frozen flower, at the foot of the waves, and I thought of da Vinci, the way he kept dreaming of what, his inside, of what was inside the darkness, how it wanted to rise on its invisible muscle, how it wanted to shine like fire. So we have Michelangelo and da Vinci already mentioned. Michelangelo is the very first line, maybe Michelangelo or Picasso. Right, and then these <clears throat> big artists that are doing a lot of the work where without these famous artists in the poem, you know, what's it saying? And this is why I think I pointed this out, is that when you're using big cultural references like this, you know, be careful with how much work they're doing in the poem. Is the poem entirely reliant on you mentioning these big cultural artists and figures throughout history? Is it overly reliant on a quote or something that isn't in the poem or is like, you know, starts the poem? How heavily is it leaning on these things to give it a kind of meaning or significance in the overall collection of poems? And that's why I say, like, you know, using these kind of famous artists <clears throat> and then kind of going off on something different or just comparing their work to like what you're viewing in nature right now, like the sun rising. I don't know. I feel like it relies too heavily on, you know, referencing these great artists, but, you know, let me know what you think. All right, running to the end here. I know I've been going a little while. Um, okay, so my absolute favorite poem here, and this is one of her favorite, one of her famous lines, the last line of the last two lines of this poem is very good. And there, there's moments where I'll criticize it too, where I'll get into some of the rhetoricals here. But The Summer Day on page 60, again, one of Oliver's most famous poems. The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And that last line is so good. Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? One of the best use 
of a question without an answer in a poem, I think, when you're ending on this very, very powerful thing, because there's so much in that question, right? And we have to lead up to it. So the poem has to lead up to this kind of question. If you just do this with your own, if this line was just by itself, a little couplet, these two lines, then it wouldn't just have as much power. Now, that being said, the first two lines, I think, could be completely cut. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? Like these kind of questions that came in, I just think you could have cut those first two lines. Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper. I mean, the one who has flung her. You know, like you don't need those first two rhetoricals. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Um, you know, I don't know. That, that's where I think the rhetoricals kind of come in and get overused. And that's why I said they seemed amateurish, that like you could kind of get those rhetoricals out of there as a technique. But like the technique is how they can be used uh, to brighten um, or like kind of, you know, heighten the poem, brighten or, or augment the poem. Uh, so I think that, you know, doesn't everything die at last? Tell me, what else should I have done? I think that's a good one. Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? That's another good one. Tell me, you know, these last three more powerful than the first three. And people could say, oh, that these questions are kind of meant to be in tandem with the first three lines and the last kind of three three questions, four lines. But I don't think that's the case. I think this is a case of using just a few too many rhetoricals to get the point across. And this is kind of the dividing line, I would say, with rhetoricals and how they're used in poetry. So if you're using a rhetorical sentence or a rhetorical question, you know, there has to be an impact and it has to be led up to, you know, the things coming before that rhetorical question and what's going to come after that rhetorical question are very important. Now, rhetoricals can be very powerful when used in poetry, like the last line of this poem, like I already said. But you have to be careful because it can also lead to um, overuse, like in those first two lines of this poem. And the first two, you know, rhetorical questions in this poem on those first two lines, are they really doing much? Are they really doing anything different than what that first poem in the collection was trying to orient us towards? I don't think so. Uh, so I would say that's a good example of overusing rhetoricals where they're not doing what the technique would allow you to do with them. Uh, but if you look at the last few rhetoricals, they are doing what the technique is best at, which is raising these kind of, you know, chill-inducing rhetoricals at the end after you have this long kind of description of the grasshopper and this nature scene. And I think that's something that works. Uh, I liked this poem for the most part. So even though I'm critiquing it, you know, keep that in, keep that in mind. So much about herons here. Like that's, a, I can only read about herons so much before I'm just bored out of my mind. Uh, and that's basically how I felt about Mary Oliver's House of Light. And that's all my notes. That's all I have. Let me know what you think about this. Heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. Again, this is the podcast. You can support us on patreon.com slash heavyboard, where you get full access to uncensored episodes for just $5 a month. Uh, if you don't want to do that, can't afford it, there are free ways to support us. You can leave us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. That helps us out, helps us grow. It's a free way to support us. You can also check out our YouTube channels. Like, share, subscribe, at heavyboard on YouTube and at heavyboard clips for clips channel out there. Give those a like, a share, a subscribe. That helps us out. And of course, if you have something to say, you have something to add, you have something to disagree with, you just want to reach out and say, hey, you send me an email at heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. That's usually where I'll get it and I'll reply to you guys. I've been a little delayed on replying. There was some stuff in my life going on, but now I'm, I'm back on top of it. I can usually reply within 24 to 48 hours and then I'll usually uh, 
read parts of it if you guys have something to share. You know, I'll try to do these episodes where <clears throat> we can have a little kind of powwow together, <clears throat> even virtually, right? Like, I know I'm not there. You're not speaking to me directly, but you are in a way, right? So it's kind of an indirect form of communication. I get that, but, you know, it, I think it works out. And I've had good responses from the listeners that are enjoying those. So, yeah, tell me what you're thinking. gmail.com. Uh, other than that, I'm Andrew Whitstep. This has been Heavy Board. See ya. Heavy. Board. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy board. Sweats and the day sweats, pal. Pal, I do.